Section 18 of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 38. The Game Lost. The hour and the man are words expressing an association of ideas which finds illustration in almost every historical crisis. The hour of crisis at the close of Queen Anne's life seems to have brought with it just the man demanded by the occasion. While the Queen was sinking more and more, the counsels of most of those who were near her seemed to be perplexed and distracted by an increasing uncertainty. This was especially manifest among those who were more or less avowedly in favor of the Stuart succession. Bishop Atterbury indeed did not give way to any uncertainty, and was quite clear in his mind as to the course which ought to be pursued. His earnest advice to his friends was that the death of the Queen should be followed at once by the proclamation of King James III as Sovereign of England, and he declared himself quite ready to take the leading part in the proclamation. He did not, however, succeed in filling the hearts of his Jacobite friends with his own courage or his own confidence, and whatever may have been Bolingbroke's personal inclination to the cause of the Stuarts, he could not make up his mind to such a venture. Much speculation has been indulged in by historical writers as to the possibility of a Stuart restoration if the advice of Atterbury had been followed. But the mere fact that Atterbury was not able to inspire his friends with a full faith in the feasibility of his project is decisive evidence that he was not the man of the hour. Among the Whig leaders, on the other hand, the man of the hour appears to have been found. Amid all the doubts and distractions of the time, it was natural that the eyes of the leading Whigs should have turned to one of their peers who, although he had not taken an active part in politics lately, was known for his absolute integrity, his clear head, and his steady nerve. This was Charles Talbot, Duke of Shrewsbury. Born in 1660, he had been brought up as a Roman Catholic, but had become a Protestant and took an earnest part in the Revolution of 1688. After William III, had been made King of England, Shrewsbury was appointed one of the Secretaries of State. He did not hold that office long, but resigned of his own accord. In 1694 the office was again offered to him and accepted, and his peerage as an earl was then raised to a dukedom as a tribute to the valuable services he had rendered to the cause of the Revolution. He was a man of very engaging manners and won universal estimation for his high principles, his unselfishness, and his sincerity. Macaulay, in his History of England, says of him that before he was of age, he was allowed to be one of the finest gentlemen and finest scholars of his time. He was early called the King of Hearts, and never, through a long, eventful, and checkered life, lost his right to that name. Shrewsbury had borne an important part in the negotiations with France for the Treaty of Peace. During these negotiations, he had shown some distrust of Bolingbroke's policy, and it was commonly believed that Bolingbroke found him a good deal in the way. An outward appearance of friendship was kept up by the two men, 
but their characters and purposes were so widely different that anything like common action between them was not easily maintained. Shrewsbury always endeavoured to impress counsels of moderation upon both Bolingbroke and Oxford during the time of their growing and manifest rivalry. Mr. Wyon, in his history, gives it as his opinion that before the genius, the character, the years, and the fame of Shrewsbury, the brilliant and eager secretary felt himself rebuked. One is reminded of Macbeth's words about Banquo. There is none but he whose being I do fear, and under him my genius is rebuked, as it is said Mark Antony's was by Caesar. Probably the rebuke which Bolingbroke's genius felt in the presence of Shrewsbury arose from the fact that Bolingbroke's keen perceptions recognized in Shrewsbury the constant presence of those high qualities of disinterestedness and noble devotion to principle which he well knew were wanting to his own character. Shrewsbury was one of Bolingbroke's official colleagues, for at the time we have now reached he was Viceroy of Ireland. The serious crisis threatened by Queen Anne's illness had led to Shrewsbury's being summoned over from Dublin to take part in the councils of the ministry. Shrewsbury's arrival in London made him more than ever an object of distrust and dislike to Bolingbroke. It was, of course, Bolingbroke's ambition to succeed Oxford as Lord High Treasurer, and the mere presence of Shrewsbury seemed to him to bode something detrimental to his ambitious hopes. The idea, no doubt, came into his mind that Shrewsbury might obtain the place which had been taken from Oxford, and that Mr. Wyon puts it, he could not trust Shrewsbury as he had trusted Oxford. The grace and gentleness of Shrewsbury's manners, Wyon says, disarmed all opposition, his sweet temper conciliated even the fiercest of politicians, his age, his rank, and the great services which he had rendered to the revolution when William of Orange was seated on the throne rendered him an object of respectful interest to the generation which had grown up since that great event first startled the world. Meanwhile, the crisis was drawing to an end. The trials the Queen had to go through before the dismissal of Oxford was finally resolved upon, and at the time when it was put in force were too much for her physical weakness and her shattered nerves. Her own words to one of her physicians were that she felt sure she could not survive the shock which the crisis had brought upon her. On the morning of Friday, July 30th, she had an attack of apoplexy and remained for some time absolutely speechless. It was clear to all around her that the end was close at hand and that no time was to be lost in making arrangements to meet the danger that must have to be faced. A meeting of the Privy Council had already been summoned for that day at Kensington Palace. The constitution of the Privy Council was in its principle much the same in the days of Queen Anne as it is in our own time. The usage was that only those members of the Privy Council were to attend one of its meetings who had received an official summons to take part in the consultation. Perhaps it would be better to say that the Privy Council of that time represented the whole body of the administration as we now have it, and that the members summoned to attend its meetings held the position which the members of the Cabinet occupy in our own time and have occupied during recent reigns. 
Therefore, when the summonses were issued for the meeting of the Council on the memorable July 30, 1714, there was no expectation in the mind of Bolingbroke that any privy councillor would present himself to take part in the consultation who had not received the formal summons inviting his presence. But at the same time, there was no law or rule of any kind forbidding the attendance of any privy councillor who chose to present himself at such a meeting. Here, then, arose a contingency against which Bolingbroke had never provided or even thought of providing, and as often happens at such critical moments, the one possibility never taken into consideration proved to be decisive of the whole result. There are few scenes in merely political history more dramatic and more momentous than the scene enacted at that meeting of the Privy Council at Kensington Palace. Bolingbroke, of course, was early in his place. The Duke of Ormond was present, and other Jacobite peers as well. It was understood that the Council would have to come to some decision as to the name of the minister who should be recommended to the Queen for the place of Lord High Treasurer, from which Oxford had been dismissed. The Duke of Shrewsbury was one of the earliest among the peers who presented himself in the council chamber. His presence was no doubt expected by Bolingbroke, and he was entitled to receive the formal summons, which was the right of a minister holding such a position. But before the members present in the council chamber had time to get to any of their business, an addition was made to the numbers present, which was totally unexpected by Bolingbroke, and those acting in combination with him. The doors of the council chamber were suddenly thrown open, and the Duke of Argyle and the Duke of Somerset entered the room. To many of the peers then present, the entrance of these noblemen must have seemed little short of a daring intrusion. There was, however, nothing to be done. There was no way of expelling the intruders, for they had a strict constitutional right by virtue of their titles, to present themselves at the meeting. The Duke of Argyle quietly explained to the council that the Duke of Somerset and he had heard the news about the dangerous state of the Queen's health, and that although not specially summoned to attend the meeting of the Privy Council, they had felt themselves bound to hasten to the meeting in order that they might be able to afford some advice and assistance at a crisis so much fraught with danger to the state. Now the Duke of Somerset was a man of the most commanding position, and was, so far as rank and property and influence went, one of the most powerful noblemen in the kingdom. He had many intellectual and personal defects, which often rendered him positively ridiculous. The haughtiness of his manners, his preposterous pride in his rank and his dignity, made him the sport of satirists, and many of the anecdotes told, truly or falsely, to illustrate his overweening and grotesque arrogance have passed into history and are in constant circulation even in our own days. Of him the story was told at a later day that when his second wife once playfully tapped him on the shoulder with her fan, he sternly admonished her against such familiarities, and told her that my first wife was a Percy, and she never took such a liberty. That first wife was a woman of great political and social power, a bulwark of the Whigs. 
She was believed by the Tories at one time to have an immense influence over the Queen and was an object of especial detestation to Swift. Whenever the Duke had occasion to travel in England, all the roads he had to pass through were cleared by a body of outriders whose duty it was not merely to protect him against obstruction or delay, but to take care that none of the lower orders were allowed to gladden their vulgar eyes by gazing at his august person. But however extravagant he may have been in his pride, and however ridiculous he may have made himself by displaying it, he was undoubtedly a nobleman of immense territorial and political influence, and when he had openly attached himself to the cause of the Hanoverian succession, there could be no question that he was regarded by both parties as a tower of strength to that cause. Moreover, he was undoubtedly a man of honor and of steadfast principle, a man whose word, when once it had been given, could safely be relied upon, whose very pride made it impossible for him to condescend to any acts of duplicity or any violation of a given promise. His voluntary appearance that day in the council room was evidence enough for Bolingbroke that he must have some definite political purpose in coming there, and that he was not likely to fail in carrying his purpose into execution. The other uninvited member of the council was one whose name and character have been made familiar to us by poetry and romance, as well as by political history. The Duke of Argyle is described by Pope as one, the state's whole thunder born to wield and shake alike the senate and the field. We know that Pope's eulogies of his friends were sometimes a little too enthusiastic, but it is certain that Argyle was regarded as one of the most eloquent speakers in the House of Lords, and he had undoubtedly read and studied much for a man whose professional occupations did not afford many opportunities for intellectual culture. Argyle was a soldier by profession and had taken part in many great battles and sieges. His name has already been mentioned in this history when the story of the campaigns under Marlborough was told. Unnumbered readers have in modern days known him chiefly, perhaps only, through the pages of Walter Scott's novel The Heart of Midlothian, where he is pictured as the generous and resolute protector of poor Jeanie Deans when she makes her immortal pilgrimage to London to plead for her sister's pardon with Queen Caroline. Scott, however, shows us only the higher and nobler side of Argyle's character, and is not called upon to take any account of the weaknesses and defects which marred to a great extent the better qualities of the man. We learn from many of Argyle's contemporaries that he was haughty, imperious, and self-asserting, and his enemies declared that the maintenance of his own influence and his own commanding position was his chief object in life. He had changed his political opinions more than once on some apparently sudden impulse, and the general impression was that no party or cause could rely upon him if his own personal interest and ambition were to lead him the other way. Some of his ancestors had given up their lives, for the sake of their political convictions. His grandfather was the subject of Ward's famous picture in Westminster Palace, The Last Sleep of Argyle. Few modern paintings are better known to the general public than this, which pictures the last rest of that Argyle before his execution. 
the father of that Argyle too, laid down his life on the scaffold, and a still earlier representative of the family fell at Flodden. But the Argyle with whom we are now dealing was not supposed to have any tenacity of opinion which would be likely to conduct him to the scaffold. That he was a man of courage nobody could doubt, for he had won the high praise of Marlborough by his gallant action at Ramillies, Oudenard, and Malplaquet, but neither his friends nor his enemies believed him to be one who would sacrifice his own interests and his own ambition for the sake of any political cause. He had played fast and loose for a time with the great questions which were agitating the country, but he had of late given his adhesion openly and even ostentatiously to the Hanoverian party. The mere fact that he had done so made it clear, even to those who liked him least, that he must have felt completely satisfied as to the success of the Hanoverian cause, and that he was thus satisfied was strong evidence that the cause was likely to succeed. When Bolingbroke and Ormond saw Argyle in the council chamber, they must have known that a decisive stroke was about to be made on behalf of George the Elector. The appearance of the two uninvited and unexpected visitors was not the only or even the chief surprise for Bolingbroke and his friends. The supreme moment of the crisis came when the Duke of Shrewsbury arose and in impressive tones tendered on his own behalf and on that of the members of the council generally his thanks to Somerset and Argyle for their courtesy in coming to the meeting and formally accepted their cooperation. The newcomers then took their places at the council table, and Bolingbroke must have thoroughly realized the meaning and the significance of the whole event. That two Whig peers of so great position and influence as Somerset and Argyle should have presented themselves unbidden at such a council meeting on such an occasion would of itself have made it clear that these two men must have regarded themselves as representing a power too strong to be carelessly dealt with. But when Shrewsbury took it upon himself to welcome their presence and to accept openly their cooperation, it must have seemed certain to Bolingbroke that the whole proceeding was part of a premeditated and prearranged policy which felt itself in a position to overbear all resistance. Bolingbroke must have seen at that moment that the Whig statesmen knew themselves to be absolute masters of the situation and that the Jacobite game was up. Thus far, all the received accounts of this important political episode are in general agreement as to what took place in the council chamber. But with regard to what followed, there is some difference in the reports. According to one story, when the peers had formally settled down for consultation, Somerset and Argyle demanded the latest reports of the royal physicians as to the Queen's health, and having received them and studied them, proposed to the council that the Duke of Shrewsbury should be recommended to the Queen to fill the place of Lord High Treasurer. Bolingbroke, according to this statement, did not venture to take on himself the responsibility of resisting the proposal. It was clearly borne in upon his mind that the crisis was actually over, that the Hanoverian succession was secure, and that it would be utterly unwise of him to offer any objection to a proposal which had so much influence to support it. 
Of course, it was well known that it was his ambition to obtain the place of Lord High Treasurer for himself, and perhaps up to that moment it may have been his confident expectation that his desire would be realized. But when the men who evidently believed themselves entitled to assume a dictatorial position could take on them to recommend the name of the Duke of Shrewsbury, Bolingbroke was not likely to put himself in the ignoble position of one who betrays at the same time his ambition and his weakness by offering a futile resistance. According to another version of what passed in the council chamber, it was not either Argyle or Somerset, but Bolingbroke himself who proposed that Shrewsbury should be recommended for the treasurer's office. The suggestion is that when Bolingbroke heard the welcome offered by Shrewsbury to the two uninvited Whig peers, he made up his mind at once that the crisis was over, that there was no more question as to the chances of the struggle, and that, as he could not resist the success of the Whig party, the best course he could take for the sake of his own influence was to put himself at the front of the rising movement and make of his own accord the proposal which would most certainly be made and carried, whether he approved of it or not. This version is accepted by many writers in the earlier days of the Hanoverian dynasty and by some in our own time who are well qualified to form an opinion. Mr. Lecky, for instance, regards it as quite probable that Bolingbroke may thought it well to accept and anticipate the inevitable by making the proposition himself. Such a course of action on his part would undoubtedly have been quite in keeping with all we know of Bolingbroke's character. He was not a man to throw up the cards because he saw that the chances of the game were going against him. His was a fighting spirit, and his impulse was ever like that of Macbeth to try the last. When he saw that the whole scheme had been prearranged and that it must have its way, nothing could have been more in accordance with his impulsive and self-asserting temperament than that he should make up his mind at once to maintain at least the appearance of being a leader in the struggle and should take on himself to initiate the course of action which otherwise his adversaries would be sure to adopt as their own. The proposal by whomsoever made was adopted without further discussion. The council appointed a deputation of the peers with the Duke of Shrewsbury among them to seek an interview as soon as possible with the dying queen. Anne consented without delay to receive the deputation, and when its purpose was made known to her, she gave the Lord Treasurer's staff into Shrewsbury's hands and spoke a few words in that voice which had always been sweet and musical, that voice which was one of her few personal charms, and even to the last retained its melodious tone. The words she spoke were few indeed, but they must have made a deep impression on those in whose hearing they were spoken. As she put the symbol of office into the new Lord Treasurer's hand, she enjoined him to use it for the good of her people. With the appointment of Shrewsbury to the office of Lord High Treasurer, the crisis may be said to have come to an end. Bolingbroke must have known by this time that so far as the purposes and plans of the Jacobites were concerned, the battle was lost. The men now placed in power acted with promptitude and energy. Summonses were sent out at once, specially inviting the attendance of every member of the Privy Council living in or near London. The council thus summoned held a meeting on the same afternoon. That meeting would have been memorable if for no other reason 
by the fact that one of those who took part in it was Lord Summers, the great lawyer and Whig statesman who had rendered splendid services to the rule of William III, and had been famous before that time as one of the advocates who defended the seven bishops. Lord Summers was now in feeble health, had grown old beyond his years, and was supposed to be physically incapacitated for any part in public affairs. When he received the summons, he realized the full importance of the occasion, and overmastered so far his infirmities of frame and nerves as to hasten to the place of counsel and put his judgment, experience, and authority at the service of the dying queen. The council took prompt and decisive action. Several regiments were concentrated in and near London. Troops were recalled from Ostend, and the fleet was ordered to be in readiness for sea. General Stanhope, who was both soldier and statesman, was put in full authority over all the military measures that might be thought necessary by him in order to anticipate any attempt at a Jacobite revolution and to secure the safety of the succession. One of his first duties was to hold possession of all the outports and to enable the ministry to have at their command such a military force as might be wanted to make good the arrests of important personages if any such measures should prove to be necessary. Stanhope, in fact, was entrusted with all the powers of a military dictator and was a man well qualified to exercise such powers with firmness and judgment. The Whigs had won the game and there was nothing left for the losing party but to pay the forfeit quietly and avoid as much as possible any unseemly demonstration of disappointment. There was still one at least of the Jacobites who did not despair. We have already mentioned the course of policy which Bishop Atterbury was prepared to advocate and to carry into action. Atterbury actually came to Bolingbroke and strongly urged him to make arrangements for the proclamation at Charing Cross of James Stuart as King of England the moment the breath should be out of Queen Anne's body. Atterbury had the full courage of his opinions and he offered to head a procession in his lawn sleeves for the purpose of supporting the proclamation if Bolingbroke would only accept his advice and give orders to have it put in force. Bolingbroke, however, was not the man to lead or even to concern himself much about what he now knew to be a forlorn hope. For him, the cause of the Stuarts was already lost, and his temperament and animal spirits did not allow him to take any interest in lost causes, but he did not by any means accept the idea that there was not something still to be done for his own party and for his own advancement. It was thoroughly characteristic of him to find new ambitions and new schemes arising out of the very ashes of extinguished hopes and plans. We know from the letters which he wrote to Swift at the very time of the crisis that he was already meditating plans for the utter confusion of the Whig party, no matter how soon the Hanoverian sovereign might come and take possession of the kingdom. Bolingbroke's firm belief appears to have been that he could convict the Whig statesmen of having been all the time engaged in treasonable and secret machinations for a Stuart restoration. He declares emphatically that he will show up the Whigs as a pack of Jacobites, and cheerily adds, that shall be the cry in a month, if you please. No doubt Bolingbroke had good reason to know that the statesmen of that time were not all and always exactly what they professed to be. He had himself played fast and loose with Jacobites and Hanoverians to the very end, 
and he knew that Oxford had done the same sort of work, although in a somewhat different way. He was well aware that Marlborough, who was now recalled to England to support the Hanoverian succession, had at various periods of his career entered into private negotiations with the Jacobites. He might therefore have no difficulty in persuading himself that the Whigs were no better than their rivals, and that it needed only a bold and outspoken accusation against them to fill the mind of the public with conviction of their guilt. Bolingbroke was by this time perfectly willing to accept the Hanoverian succession and to serve the new sovereign to the best of his ability. His brain was occupied only with the conception of plans which should keep his enemies out of office and allow him to become the head of the new administration. Condemn as we must the selfishness of the man, his utter lack of patriotism and of political morality, it is impossible not to feel a sort of admiration for the indomitable courage and the inexhaustible animal spirits which no defeat could reduce to mere prostration. End of section 18